episode of the Starbase Indie Podcast you're about to hear was recorded live at Starbase Indie 2022. This file is uh, the uh, uh, panel discussion on the future of human spaceflight with Dr. Barrett Caldwell and Mr. Tom Rathchen. Good morning. It's really nice to see you. This is a pretty good turnout for Sunday morning. Uh, appreciate everybody's interest in what's going on in human spaceflight. Has everybody had a very a good convention? Good, good. Yeah, I think I think they did a pretty good job with the program this year and got some good Star Trek and good science guests. Uh, good balance uh, this year. So, I, I have to admit, I got so excited with the designation science ambassador because I really do feel like that's part of the job here. So, I, I may have to keep building on that. I hope so. I, you know, I've, I've, I've only been in, uh, involved with Starbase Indy for a couple of years. We moved here after I uh, retired from NASA. And uh, what I, I really do like about it is the emphasis is not just on, you know, celebrating the science fictions, you know, that we love so much, but the uh, idea of outreach to promote STEM education and, and uh, uh, humanitarianism and, and uh inclusion and so forth and try to put that together in the context and and that's what Starbase Indy does so I you know glad you're involved and and uh, plan to stay involved as well so I guess we'll get this kicked off and okay this is pretty informal uh, um, uh, really not a whole lot of preparation so I hope it's going to be really a conversation with you all and Dr. Caldwell and I can sort of talk about what we uh have been doing in our careers to further the future of human spaceflight, maybe kind of where things are at and and where uh, each of us maybe see things going and uh, and then get some feedback from you all on where youth think things are going or think they should be going and uh, and uh, and talk about that. So I'd always want to begin and give a little introduction on your background and what you've been doing for how many, what? It's been 20 years since we intersected right. at NASA, so it's got to be a long time. So, so yeah, I, let me do that. My name is Barrett Caldwell. I am a, a professor in industrial engineering and aeronautics and astronautics at Purdue. And I'm one of those Sputnik generation space shot, moonshot geeks. So I grew up um, watching the Apollo missions and... I said, that's what I want to do with my life. Um, so I was one of those six-year-olds who said, I want to do that. I don't even know how to quite pronounce astronautics yet, but that's what I want to do. And so I think I've wanted to do a human spaceflight for most of my life. Uh, and in fact, when I went to uh, college as an undergraduate, I, uh, I started out in AeroAstro, and I found out there were a lot of people who wanted to do the engineering of human sp spaceflight, but they didn't actually wa want to study the humans. And uh, I, I sort of use the analogy, it's kind of like if you want to design airplanes, but you don't understand about aluminum. It really doesn't work very well. In order to understand how to do human spaceflight, you kind of have to understand something about humans individually and in teams. So that was an emphasis I had as an undergraduate and a graduate student. Um, and I started calling myself a systems engineer whose subsystem uh, was humans 
in teams because we haven't launched humans one at a time since 62 mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, so I studied social psychology in graduate school because that was group dynamics in, in teams together. So I, if I count that as when I started doing human spaceflight for real and for analog, that is 37 years ago. So I've been a faculty member for 32 years, uh, 10 years at Wisconsin and then at Purdue. And, uh, well, you know this um, really, really well, Tom. Um, it's very hard to have a better name on a business card uh, when you're doing research at NASA than being from Purdue. And I was always stunned with how many, not just astronauts, but engineers throughout mission control, throughout the uh, mission operations, throughout the uh, neutral buoyancy lab, all the different pieces that touched human spaceflight had these people that sort of welcomed me into the, um, dare I say, collective. Um, but yeah, it means that I, I have, you know, been doing human spaceflight as a primary research focus much more than half my life, so about 35, 37 years, something like that. And um, uh, are you uh, currently uh, working any specific uh, uh, research activities for NASA? And yeah, so um, we've got several research projects going on, and, and one of the great things about being a faculty member, it's kind of like being the CEO of your own startup. So you go out and you find funding and you go out and find places to sell your ideas because your ideas are the primary things that are part of your life. Um, and so we've got a project with um, Saab Aerospace looking at how do you get humans and uh, AI agents and robots to coordinate with each other. Um, that emphasis is on disaster response. Um, but we also have a project with um, NASA through another researcher looking at how would you keep track of all the things going on when you're building the deep space gateway. So we have this idea that we're going to build another space station in lunar orbit. Okay, that's a long way away. And... I, I joked about it as launching bags of Lego. Yeah. And then you have to put all those Lego together 200,000 miles away from here. And how do you even keep track of which pieces are which pieces, let alone how do they go together and how do you show that information to an astronaut? And basically starting with who does anything that looks like that now? Um, you can think about people on oil rigs in the North Sea. You can think about people who are doing uh, uh, extreme construction projects and, and skyscrapers, the very tall skyscrapers. You can talk about people who are working. Um, there, there's a naval detachment that works at the South Pole to keep all of the South Pole operations working. So those sorts of engineers and technicians who managed to keep things running in the most bizarre and extreme of situations, those are the people that we want to learn from for being able to do that in space. Very good. Yeah, that's uh, 
if you uh, uh, aren't familiar with the, the uh, program um, uh, Dr. Caldwell was talking about, I, uh, or maybe you're at my talk on, on Friday, that's a part of the Artemis program uh, is this gateway, which, of course, that mission, the first real integrated test flight is flying right now. It did successfully go into its uh, uh, distant retrograde orbit uh, for the next few days on uh, uh, late uh, Friday afternoon. Uh, and uh, yes, a key part of that uh, overall NASA architecture for the uh, Artemis program and establishing first short missions and then in particular the long missions on the moon is this outpost, this uh, uh, way point uh, in lunar uh, orbit uh, called the Gateway. So, and yeah, if, if, you, if any of you were there and you saw all the launches that have to come together is exactly what Dr. Caldwell is talking about. At least the first couple should be pre-integrated, but then after that, uh, then it's uh, uh, launching up separate pieces and, and some probably without astronauts, some with astronauts. So um, uh, very ambitious and very exciting. But then the advantage will be that with that um, uh, uh, way, way station, uh, hopefully it will enable sustainability through reusability of uh, the hardware components and will make this whole thing affordable because there'll be a place to reuse the landers and refuel them and, and that sort of thing. So. And, and, yeah, especially because when you think about the, the, the energy associated with spaceflight, most of the energy that we need at all is getting out of the gravity well of Earth. So the more things you can do at the top of the well rather than at the bottom of the well, the more capability you have. The problem is everything we know how to use is all at the bottom of the well. So we need to move as many things up to the top of the well and then learn how to make other things at the top of the well and not bring them back down to the bottom. So, you know, building the, the Gateway Space Station and then saying, okay, how can we use that to start developing a more sustainable presence and more sustainable uh, construction and reuse capabilities from the lunar surface to lunar orbit. So basically, you build things that never experience um, the world of Earth. Uh, and if, if you can do that, it makes a lot of things a lot more capable for a lot longer. Um, you know, just being able to say we can have components that didn't have to start on earth is is really a, a big challenge yep and 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 critical for the next phase of if we're going to go interplanetary and be sending humans to mars the same kind of thing will have to happen to you know, get out of the well like you said put the infrastructure together that then has to travel that distance and with the right uh, amount of uh uh, uh, you know, safety uh, for in your mission con ops of pre-deploying pieces and, and some of it coming together on the surface of Mars for the first time even. And so, yeah, super important. Um, Great. Well, uh, yes, thank you for that. Yes, so go ahead, Dennis. In essence, try to create uh, an advanced IKEA. Yeah, so you can take a that's box right. Well, it, simple instructions, send it out there, and anywhere along the way we can just grab that box and put something together. Well, it... Yes, but there's a couple of extra goodies. What if you had an advanced IKEA box that could put itself together? Right. And have you seen the video of the robot doing that? I'm not sure if I'm familiar with exactly. The technician is using manipulators to program the robot. 
and it's actually putting an IKEA chair together. Ah, okay. The program's done. The robot can stand there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, putting chairs together. Right, and and so that is an aspect of combining the capabilities of the robot and the capabilities of the human, because right now, and I get in trouble when I talk to my my colleagues about this, um, we don't have a vision system anywhere that we're allowed to know about. And I'm not just saying that from a, a cloak and dagger standpoint. That there are some advanced systems that are in very proprietary development, but we don't have a demonstration anywhere of a, a robotic vision system that can pick out a 10 by 32 screw in a box of 8 by 20 screws. Mm -hmm. And that's what this robot's doing. He's actually picking up wooden dials and different screws and nuts and washers and putting them in the right place. Right. And so, you know, it's for a lot of people, it's that sort of holy grail to get fully robotic capabilities. Um, and in, in the in my chair here yesterday, we were talking about the capabilities of centaur accommodations of human capabilities and robotic capabilities. Um, it's not as cool from the um, robotic autonomy standpoint, but it's a lot shorter and a much more stable um, development platform to say, let's take the best of what humans can do and the best of what robots can do rather than try to decide um, we'll, do, we'll separate them from each other or try to figure out how to get all, all the robots to do all of all of it, everything. That was too many alls. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to go look for this, though, now, Dennis, and see if we can find it on, uh, on uh, YouTube or wherever. Yeah, I mean, the gentleman is standing there, and he's literally picking up the right part, putting it together with the manipulators on, and that's sending the program for the robot. The robot's doing it right next to him. So, obviously, if he sneezes, that's going to be a problem. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, let's say, well, it's in the interest of, uh, I guess, you know, talking about the future human space flight, uh, I, uh, well, let me f first quick say, if you hadn't uh, been introduced to me before at the, uh, at my other talk, uh, so I'm Tom Rathjen. I'm, I uh, worked at NASA for a little over 30 years, both in Houston and in NASA headquarters, uh, and then now retired, but still doing some consulting work for uh, human space flight and uh, Artemis program and other things NASA's trying to do. And uh, our paths intersected in, uh, it's like the early 2000s, mm -hmm. I believe it was, when for a period there I was uh, uh, heavily involved in the space human factors uh, engineering uh, research and development work that NASA was doing. And so Dr. Caldwell was one of our, our researchers that we were uh, funding and, uh, and also advising us uh, uh, at the time. And uh, so that's where our paths had crossed. And it was, um, you know, I'm glad you felt welcomed then and, and have continued. Uh, you know, I'll say that from my NASA side of it, uh, the idea of um, uh, bringing the human into it, as you said, and, and designing for the human or designing as the human being part of a system, 
sometimes was an uphill battle when you're in <laughs> in the fence and you're yeah. you know in the programmatics of the funding and the and the other constraints of of uh, you know mass and volume and things you're trying to achieve and so in uh, you know when I was working that stuff that period of time and then even later in the constellation program in Orion it was often a uh, a little bit of an uphill challenge to make sure you get the you know the requirements to adequately accommodate that into the into the uh, into the systems. Uh, yeah, that that's a great point. That um, thank you for saying that because yeah. it, uh, now I can respond and I don't have to yeah. feel like I brought it up. Um, <laughs> but but no, one of the things that I learned um, very early on as a graduate student was that need to be able to translate uh, human dimensions into engineering requirements. Right. So if you were going to recommend a thing or a feature or something like that, it's, okay, does that fit within the mass budget? Okay, there's only so much you can carry. There's only so many watts of power that you're going to have. There's only so many uh, materials that are space qualified. So everything that you have to, everything that's on the space station now had to get there on its own merits within the engineering constraints. And uh, Tom and I actually overlapped during the very beginning of that space station era when we were still in early construction phase. And you can't just say, well, we'll think it will be better for the astronauts. Well, we think it will be better for the flight controllers if we do that. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, studies that I ended up doing and providing some of the advice was this idea, well, all those flight controller loops are kind of expensive to maintain. Which ones can we turn off? And from a human factors perspective, it wasn't really obvious what that answer would be, but we were able to go and show from an engineering perspective the most important loops, the, the, the most important communications between flight controllers with each other or with the astronauts were at a particular level of frequency that you're saying, okay, we know that that's really important, and we could show two things. One, you may not need it all the time, but when you need it, you need it. And if you have to wait until you need it to turn it on, it's going to be too late. So we were able to show using engineering specifications, here is how this capability adds value to human spaceflight. And I don't think if I had done it just from a stress and well-being standpoint that that would have gotten over the the hump Ed, you're absolutely right yes you, you the times that it has succeeded to get the program managers who are trying to you know herd all the cats and 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 stay within budget and schedule are when it it you can demonstrate that it is critical for the total mission uh, and um, and it's taken, you know, I, one thing that's been fascinating to me in today's, you know, era of human spaceflight is that um, uh, now we have commercial companies, you know, building things both for NASA or partly for NASA and some completely not for NASA, but NASA's welcome, you know, to be 
the uh, passengers if they want. And uh, so some of those have had to respond to the requirements and the standards that we've established now over 50, 60 years of, of experience. And some of them are on their own, though, and then they're thinking about well, I want to be selling tickets on my 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 suborbital flight, or or uh, or even my starship to the moon and back is you know going to be aimed at at uh, paying customers and not necessarily NASA requirements. And so, how how have those accommodations for the human you know been been designed into these new systems that are not just driven by by NASA and the space human factors experts who have worked in the field for quite some time and been kind of interesting to, to watch. Yeah, and, and it's been also fun to watch the different ways that people, if they start from scratch, what decisions do they do a little bit differently? Um, I've had a lot of fun looking at the different ways that the different mission control uh, yeah. capabilities look like. And yeah, I, I've, got a, I've really got to applaud uh, Gwyn Shotwell. Mm-hmm. Because the SpaceX mission control facility is, it looks like it does not just because it's cool and glass and they didn't have to start with a bunch of desks with uh, cathode ray tubes. Yeah. Um, But they still had to figure out how do I take all of these sources of data and get a small number of people to say, we're good to do this, but we're not good to do that. And to be able to say, yep, we know what the state of the vehicle is. We know what the state of the human capability to manage the vehicle is. And we know what our options are and how to buy time if something goes wrong. And that was one of the things that I found really, really fascinating. We, um, there's a lot of people that wanted to focus on the astronaut side. There wasn't as much on the mission control side. Right, right, right. And that, that's mission control and the uh, ground crews that process the vehicles. Yeah, those. If we think it was hard to get requirements in the system for for astronauts, it's you know a even bigger challenge sometimes to think about maintainability of the of the systems and and uh, production and operations and the human factors that go along with that is is a challenge. But yeah, it's it's interesting to compare and contrast. You know, pretty. In fact, there's a, 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 a this is a really exciting time. And I don't think in my career I've ever seen a time where there were as many diverse, I'll say, participants or, or players and, and, and different designs and vehicles uh, supporting human spaceflight at, at one time. You know, in the past, we, you know, the Russians had their Soyuz, there was the Mir space station, kind of overlapped with the shuttle, there was some diversity there, and then, and then uh, you know, now we have the International Space Station, and and uh, was initially supported by the shuttle. But coming up just in the next couple of years, you know, we've got Artemis is flying now, and so there's a design solution with Orion, and it first crewed flight maybe a couple years, give or take, uh, uh, away from now, but but that's huge. Um, uh, the SpaceX is flying, as you talked about their accomplishments. Well, their competitor, if you will, the other, the other uh, partner as part of NASA's commercial crew program, the uh, Boeing uh, CST-100 Starliner, they call it, uh, finally has flown its successful uncrewed flight. And in, I think, Aprilish time frame, yeah. they're going to fly crew for the first time. And so, you know, now we've got two very different, you know, vehicles flying to and from station. Uh, the SpaceX Starship 
uh, you know, with maybe I, I was trying to find the latest because earlier they were, it was kind of a horse race between Artemis One SLS and and uh, and uh, the SpaceX Starship, which would do their initial, you know, test flight first, and uh, Artemis made it, but. Uh, uh, SpaceX was still maybe the end of the year, but I'm, you know, maybe into next year. But sometime in by 23, we'll see that brand new vehicle start to fly. Uh, there's um, uh, other commercial avenues to space by using some of these platforms. The Axiom 2 mission, that's the second fully commercial visit to station using SpaceX, but it's a whole different model, uh, will be coming in the, in the spring. Um, Chinese have a space station now that I think they've put all their major components together, but they're up and running in parallel with our system. Of course, the Russians are still participants on ours and have, you know, the Soyuzes. They earlier, uh, you know, put yet another module on the space station. So there's just so much happening. NASA is starting a new thing, the uh, commercial um, uh, LEO low Earth orbit, commercial LEO destination program, which is kind of intended to be the, the, the re replacement, if you will, for the space station in the future where there will be, you know, commercial space stations that now are the destiny that NASA will be a tenant or a, what do you call it? A, anchor tenant. Yeah, yeah, anchor tenant or something uh, uh, that will be coming. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's just, there are so many diverse things happening and, and how do you, um, uh, 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 look at that as a as a an integrated system that can play together, and you start to worry about one thing. My the, the company I do the consulting through is really trying to champion is the idea of okay, all of this stuff is happening. Well, we really better have a, a master plan of some kind, a cislunar master plan, so so these things can work together. At some point, you know, you you can rescue each other, or you can talk to each other, or you can stay out of each other's way, or Things like that. You know? Yeah, the, um, a colleague of mine, Dan DeLaurentis, so that's my official name drawing. Um, uh, and I, about uh, about 15 years ago, started talking about this concept of space-based systems of systems. And the earthbound analog is thinking about the national airspace for the United States. Yep. Um, in Europe, they have an integrated European airspace as well. So... Imagine that, um, and, and I'm going to be careful, so I'll use outdated airlines and things like that. Um, so imagine that you want to get from Indianapolis to Philadelphia. And so there might be a Pan Am flight at, with nice meals and all that stuff. There might be a People Express flight where you, they'll charge you an extra couple bucks for your bag of peanuts or something like that. Um, but you don't want that Pan Am flight and that People Express flight to be fighting about who gets to land at Philadelphia, right? You don't want them to be arguing about who gets a full tank of fuel or if there's an emergency um, who actually is going to be allowed to. I actually remember being on a People Express flight where they had to divert but they didn't have a gate assignment at that airport, so they weren't allowed to actually let anybody off. Um, imagine that in space. That would be a bad day. So you have to have every one of these par participants to be able to do the things that they do 
for their engineering systems. And a, an airplane is a complete system, okay, with subcomponents and all that. A spacecraft is a complete system. But you do not want to wait until that's already built and flying to find out that your hatch isn't compatible with their dock. Um, and you don't want to have to wait to find out, oh, crud, we don't know what their internal pressure is. And by the way, I don't think we, uh, the Russians and the Americans have ever unified on their own vehicles on literally something as simple as cabin pressure. But when they interact with each other, they had to come to some sort of agreement so that you wouldn't be blowing out somebody's windows or sucking air out of somebody's uh, hab module. That, that, again, is a bad day. So um, that level of, it's, it's beyond requirements. It's also uh, compatible solutions. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, your pressure example is a great one, one that uh, 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 came up when we were doing an independent assessment of the overall Artemis program, and, and the, uh, it was the, uh, the health and medical people that kind of brought this to our attention, was even with those great designs and great standards and great requirements, uh, uh, the resulting uh, situation is that the the suits that the crew would wear on the commercial vehicles, the Soyuz vehicles, all were different pressures, and 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 you know that's an important um, uh, variable in designing your operations for you know support of the human physiology and and your launch and entry environment and things like that and your interfaces with the vehicle and so forth uh, between the station and it was something that frustrated the heck out of out of them that uh, you know despite the intention of having you know. Uh, um, uh, the, the absolutely necessary standards defined and, and requirements established, and then, however, trying to strike that balance of giving the commercial providers the uh, latitude to innovate their own solution, so not over-constraining them. It was a great, you know, great idea, and in, in a lot of places that was successful, but this was an example where but maybe they should have specified a common, uh, common thing. And then you talk about being able to hook up. I know at least... There is effort to do, uh, there's an international docking standard right. that NASA and with the international partners have, you know, worked on and, and uh, uh, but now you've got commercial coming into it and it's just coming up with that standard and that agreement is, is a whole lot of meetings all over the world, you know, for over a lot of time and now you've got uh, um, commercial folks coming in who maybe initially are doing something, well, that's nice, but I don't plan to work with NASA, I plan to do this but then later become part of the overall cislunar, you know, master environment or, or something that uh, we've, and sometimes we've, we've compared it to, um, uh, you know, like designing a, uh, a neighborhood or, a, you know, you have these areas now uh, that are, are uh, kind of master plan to integrate uh, your residential area and, and, and business spaces and, and, and trying to optimize all of that, and something like that before the cislunar environment would be ideal. But again, you're crossing all these government, non-government, international entities to try to do that. Right, and and they and they have both cultural and technical reasons why their idea of optimal or their design is not the same. So just saying, well, I've got the facts on my side, isn't 
actually a useful. So how many different electrical outlet yeah. standards uh, are there? And I know of at least eight to 10. And if you live all your life there, you don't, uh, you don't really have to worry about it because everything within your environment, you know, you go to the store, you buy your stereo, it comes with the right plug. You go to uh, your hardware store and you get an extension cord and it's got the right plug. And you go home and it's got the right plug. It's those funky people that keep wanting to fly to someplace else with a different standard where you get trouble. So if you stay within your walled garden, you don't see the point. And in fact, it is more expensive than if you just stayed within your walled garden. But that means you have to be completely self-sufficient and never need help or offer help. And that's a, that's a problem in this world. It is. And you miss the opportunity to leverage uh, all kinds of things, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just in general, humans have different viewpoints. They have different, the technical term is, they have different objective functions, and they have different um, decision weights. So they want different things, and they have different ideas about what's important and why. And just recognizing that they do is a complex aspect of decision science and engineering. Um, and then figuring out what to do about it um, is, how do, how do I want to say this? I ended up doing a, a job about six years ago that was one of the most intense levels of re-education I ever had. It was actually working for the State Department as an engineer on the Japan desk. So I actually got to work with the Japanese on common standards. We have one international treaty relationship on space, and it's with Japan. And just having those discussions about what do the Japanese want to do and what do the Americans want to do and how do we agree on treaty level understanding when about 95% of the diplomats don't have STEM degrees. So just being able to say, here's what's going on and here's why the engineering matters and here's why the data science matters. Um, and to come from a university environment where it's all about the, the, this is my domain and this is what I say and blah, blah, blah. Going into a, a diplomacy domain where if I had three words that were mentioned by the, um, by the NASA administrator or by the ambassador, that was a really big deal. And they never knew that it was me. Um, so that sublimation of ego for that larger program goal was an exceptionally interesting education. And I did get to experience it with NASA and JAXA between being in Japan for a few days and then 
celebrating the um, the Japanese space launches from the from the Japanese embassy. Um, those are just really cool appreciations of how much human spaceflight is about humans and not just the technology. So I would say the, the technology may be easier, partially because physics doesn't care. <laughs> It'll mess you up no matter what else. All the other things are humans trying to, to argue. I'd love to get... I'd love to give a little bit of, of uh, addition to that from my, you know, within the government experience for the 30-some years. I mean, when I was in my probably early 30s working at JSC, there was uh, Visions for Space Exploration put out by the, uh, the, uh, the second Bush administration that was supposed to be, you know, we all were wearing Mars or bust buttons. I mean, we really thought, okay, we've got some political oomph behind this. We're going to, you know, stop messing around with just, you know, I mean, it's still very exciting, but, you know, we're going to get out of low Earth orbit. We're going to do some some uh, great things. And, uh, and you know, here we are. Uh, I'm in my almost 60, and, you know, we're now just finally launching something that's going to hopefully take us back to the moon, which is nowhere near Mars or bust. So, and in that time, I've seen so many of those initiatives get started and come and go that, you know, my experience has been the biggest impediment has been the really the politics of it. And, and you can translate that to be, you know, the public sentiment and the public support and just, you know, the lack of a demand for, for doing it and the harm, harm to the progress that happens when you cross the lines of political administrations and, and congresses that, you know, want to put their own fingerprint on what's doing it you know we I was part of the constellation program that again I was so excited about what 15 20 years ago I did a talk to some school children about finally it's happening we're early in an administration we're doing constellation program Orion's going to look like this the Aries one vehicle oh Aries like upper stage Aries yeah. one. and uh, and so excited and then administration changes nope that's canceled now we're going to do something else and and so you know here we are my whole career basically you know, finally now at the very end, you know, the next thing that's going to go beyond Leo is. And so, you know, so that's, uh, you know, it just is what it is, you know, in our, in our, 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 our governance. Um, I'm very hopeful that now the introduction of two things, you know, the uh, first, you know, NASA has started to get smart of making the kind of international uh, um, commitments and participation two ways, you know, and that's harder to break. And Orion did that very smartly early on where they made the agreement with the European Space Agency to provide the service module and it was barter agreements for then flying European astronauts on the space station and beyond. And that made it harder to cancel when you have these Europe and so that and but really especially now with the commercial space coming along that, you know, government, you know, isn't necessarily the only avenue for those things. And, you know, you may or may not be a believer in what SpaceX is doing or what uh, Blue Origin is doing or, or what, you know, uh, Sierra Nevada is doing, you know, on their own or the, or, uh, or the um, Virgin Galactic, you know, there's, you know, uh, you know, whether it's a billionaire playground or whether it's, you know, a serious avenue. But, I, but, but I'm very hopeful that that will help enable the future of human spaceflight to be somewhat independent of the 
politics or at least have another avenue or hopefully a healthy partnership. So just kind of wanted to add that. I know we had a question. Question here. I was just going to comment. I, I, talking about like different you know, integration documents, this, this strikes me as an opportunity for a new market, somebody to make adapters to adapt the, you know, the U.S. NASA-based docking to SpaceX docking or something, open up a whole new market for adapters. Yeah, yeah. but do you keep those in that idea box? <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Well, satellite in space you can go to one of the You know, and. Well, actually, they already have. And this is one of the, the, the challenges that as a space grant director I have to do, I, I assume as an employee you had to do. You know, it's not like NASA just absorbs all of these tens of billions of dollars and 41% of the U.S. budget. Those are numbers that people think that that and and we launch it right. We we put all that cash into a rocket and we send it. We don't do that because it's too heavy. Um, but we do have subcontractors. We have subcontractors in the United States. Um, I mean, that is basically the Italian space agency's job was to build cupolas that were interoperable. Um, and so it is not ever a single company or organization that builds all those pieces, and it, and it never was, okay? So if I think back to that young bear cub watching Apollo 8, that was McDonnell Corporation, that was Ford Aerospace, that was IBM. Can I ask you to stand up for just a moment and, and, tur and turn your back? Okay, that yeah, that's a Purdue thing, and so so that, that's bragging. But that's an, actually an IBM flowchart of uh, abort cases for information flows during the system development. So we've always had that government, corporate, subcontractor relationship because there's no way that any one company could ever do all of it. Well, and that um, I think one, one of the best ways to talk about that now is the food, because you look at the space food, and there are people who are very good at particular types of packaging of food, of knowing how to shelf stabilize food. I, I, I think about this as one of those nightmare scenarios that you're one-third of the way back from Mars and the astronauts are going into the pantry and all the food has gone bad? Okay, this is, this is basically one of those nightmare scenarios that you can never afford to have. And so how do you first shelf-stabilize food for five or six years, second, make it tasty, Third, help you understand that it's gone bad before you've opened it. And that's a really, really challenging problem 
And if I'm going to ask someone to do that, I'd rather go to somebody who's been doing food for 125 years. So what, what yeah. else do we want to talk about? Now you've, now you've got me worried. I'm thinking about that. Because <laughs> we haven't encountered that. You know, everything we've done, even the lunar missions, are only, what, I don't know, 20 three weeks, weeks? 14 days, yeah. three weeks, yeah. Um, uh, so you can fly enough, you have reserves, and, and you could limp along home if you have to, and, and station gets resupplied. And, and, and maybe you, know. you run out of Tabasco and uh, cocktail sauce, yeah. but, yeah. okay, so they're, they're upset for a few days. You're only left with the jellied perch that the Russians brought up. Oh, yeah. oh. Can survive, <laughs> but, you know, but, uh, well, uh, as long as you got water, you can go without food for three weeks if you needed to get back. Yeah, yeah. You can't go longer than that. Yeah. Oh, Sorry. Water? How are you going to have that? Well, so, water should have a better shelf life than food. You can't carry enough water for six people for three years. What would you mean? You hope. <laughs> or you're making enough to get there, and what you need to live there and get back is being made on the surface. Either made or pre deployed. Now, or, yeah, right. th this is one of those. <laughs> thank you universe, almost literally sorts of things, where the, um, uh, the Mars ro uh, rovers detect a, a quake. What, what's going on? There's a, an asteroid impact that just happened to throw up literally ta this table-sized boulders of ice. Well, thanks for that roadmap. <laughs> okay, yeah, we think we have some good mapping, but that's based on our assumptions of what MRO is showing us and what are the emission spectra and what are the resonance peaks and all that. But when someone tosses a whole chunk of ice onto the surface and you had beasties there to tell you exactly where that was, you know, it's like, oh, maybe that's a landing site. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Other questions? Oh, 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 can I can I just can I just work on Mars? Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Well, no, go ahead. No, the, there there are three levels of worry that you've just put out to me. Um, one is there are only so many windows we get with the technologies we have to go to Mars. The next one is 2035, 2037. The one beyond that is in the early 2050s, I think it is. Um, and if you try to go in between, you basically need to double the size of your rocket. Oh, this is bad. Okay. So just hitting those windows is a really big deal. There are really only two planets that are within a reasonable transit time. And I don't want to go to Venus. I, I mean, that is just—it's five, six hundred degrees, pressures, Mariana Trench level, uh, molten stuff raining down. Not—not not my idea of a good time. So, after Mars, and I'm not even just talking about my lifetime. I'm talking about if you play all these things out, what is a reasonable thing in the 21st century? Yeah, there's some Jovian moons that we could start talking about. But that's like 
twice as far or more beyond Mars. So now you're talking about, in, unless somebody's got one of those nice uh, electric ion propulsion systems that basically don't work until you're going further than Mars, um, we're talking one to two year round trip, uh, sorry, one ways for anything past the orbit of Mars. Oh, and then I have to get through the asteroid belt. And I've got to figure out how bad is the radiation for humans. And I have to think about um, what are we going to do with somebody not experiencing Earth-level gravity right. for three years? Yep. And then they're going to land on something and actually have to perform. Right now, my some of my colleagues and I, we're talking about what, what would we want to do next? One of our biggest engineering human factors, systems level challenges, and I'll just put it out there, survive the night. <laughs> okay? If you're talking about spending time on the moon, you're going to spend half the time in this nice, friendly, well, it's actually kind of hot, and, um, but... Um, daylight on the moon you've got solar power you can do this okay do you remember that school experiment where you saw somebody dip the balloon in the liquid nitrogen and then they smashed the balloon that's nighttime on the moon is that level of temperature how do we build an engineering system that's going to do that are we able to build a suit that allows an astronaut to experience that I mean, we always launched during first quarter moon so that we would never have to deal with that. So we've got enough trouble getting some humans to Mars and getting humans to survive the night on the moon. Ganymede, yeah, it's great. I actually wore bear on Ganymede shirt on Friday night. But <laughs> let's... let's Let's take the baby steps that we don't know how to take yet. And I, I know that sounds kind of cruel, but my optimism is always based on, here's the situation, what do we do with it? What do we do about the situation now? And you're right. When, when I was an undergrad, when you were an undergrad, they had all these design reference missions. Yep, yep. We were going to be all over the place. Pumped new ones out every year. Right? Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, hey, I would have been coming back from my second Mars deployment. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just hard. It, it is just really, really hard to lay these out in a human scale. And to just kind of put a little bit of maybe, you know, opt I mean, you know, NASA's Artemis program right now plans for us, you know, sequence of launches in the in the 2020s that we're in now, a couple of years for the first human space flight by the middle of the, uh, you know, 2025 or so, first landing on the moon, and then, and then in subsequent years, building that, you know, surface capability so that they aiming for then getting to think about Mars in those windows in the 2030s. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, then it has to survive all these administrations and budget challenges and successful demonstrations. And um, But that is the official timeline right now, That and, and uh, using the systems that are starting to fly now. So it's a little bit different than 
like the vision for space exploration I mentioned earlier that never made it off the view graph, you know, phase. So, uh, so maybe there's reason for a little bit of optimism that at least we'll get back to the surface of the moon and start addressing these challenges there that uh, Dr. Caldwell was talking about, you know, within yet our lifetime in the, in the next decade or so. But that's what's on paper, but it's got to have funding and survive. Question? Yeah. You said, what's the ultimate value proposition? Uh, it is being such a challenge, but at the end of the day, how do you define and measure success? What has been the contribution to the human? And no Star Trek fan should even ask that question. That's okay. in our core, right? We okay. want to become a multi-planet species. So, so I, I, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw out a, a much more challenging and yet optimistic sort of answer. And it's not the it's not the if you had asked someone in the court of Queen Isabella, or any of the European heads of state in 1480 was the value proposition of sending these boats to the Indies. Okay. Well, yeah, there's, there's some spices there. But you already know how to get there the other way. So what's the value proposition of sending the boats? I would point out that the environmental movement of the past 50 years was born from Apollo images. It was the first time that we could have a full disk image of our home planet so that every bit of history, every human who had ever lived except for three and in one case, except for two, because my columns was in the frame, was in one frame of one image. You look at the Earth Day flag, and it's a full-disc Earth image from Apollo. Okay? You look at our capability of Earth observation and Earth conservation now, our supercomputing capabilities, our satellite predictive capabilities, the satellites themselves, the, the multispectral observation. That is based on a value proposition that we didn't know how to make until it was presented. And I will tell you now, the efforts in life support system, in food safety, in health management that will keep a crew alive for a trip to Mars. My prediction, because I think I will be gone before this happens, um, would actually make the difference between four to six billion people living or dying based on water, food, and land use insecurity in the second half of the 21st century. Right. That, that actually, we have enough food to, food to feed 8 billion people. What we don't have is enough logistic capacity and food shelf stabilization to get that to everyone in a reliable way with the political uh, issues that are involved. 
And it's actually a big deal to figure out, is that substance that is sitting on that dock, sitting in that warehouse, good for you to eat? And I'm saying as someone with a very severe allergy um, to a number of food products, I'd actually like to know that the food that I'm about to put in my face is not going to kill me in the next 12 minutes. I would like to know that the water that I'm about to drink is not going to lay me out. And although I don't live on an island state, and I'm using that preposition appropriately, um, we just had that discussion in COP27. We, um, they just had that comp, uh, discussion about how do you keep an island nation viable if all of its original um, designated UN space is now underwater. Well, how do we even know when that's going to happen or where that, where that used to be Vanuatu is now? Okay, Those are all pieces of human problems for which the space program has created value propositions. Okay, Our ability to have these podcasts. Um, if any of you have a cochlear implant, if any of you have a, um, an, a, a knee implant or a hip, if you've got a horse that had to get recovered, okay, um, all these things are part of the value proposition. The trick is none of the value propositions are linear. Thank you, Dr. Caldwell. Uh, let's see, we are uh, right at our uh, time limit here. It's 1.30. That hour went by very fast. Thank you very much for your interest. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I hope you all will be advocates for human spaceflight out in uh, your communities, whether that's here in Indianapolis or wherever, and, uh, and uh, you know, vote and support uh, accordingly because that's how you know, we're going to ultimately get there. So You, you sound like somebody who's re now retired and can say this. That's things. right. <laughs> I absolutely can, yes. So, all right. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Dr. Caldwell. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. For more information about our organization and our upcoming events, check us out at starbaseindie.org. See you on the Starbase.